Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness and thanks for loving us and thanks for uh, your word. Uh, certainly a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Lord, your word reveals who you are. And so, Lord, what a, what a blessing that we have to, uh, the privilege to sit at your feet and hear from you today. So, Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit and that you would have your way with us and that you would guide us and lead us now by your Spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you would, turn to Hosea chapter 4. I'll give you a little bit of a heads up uh, if uh, flipping through is um, uh, on the fly is cumbersome to you. Um, we're going to do a little flipping exercise today. Is that okay? Is that all right? We're not going to flip out, but we're just going to flip. Uh, we're going to flip to Genesis 3. We're going to flip to 2 Timothy 3. We're going to flip to John 3. Uh, somewhere along the way. So uh, you'll get the opportunity to do that. So if you want to find those places as we get started, that's, that's, that's great too. So we started the book of Hosea last week. Uh, kind of an interesting book. Um, they're all interesting. But Hosea was a prophet during the reign mostly of King Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, during a time when Israel's history was pretty ugly. And he prophesies up until the time of the Assyrian captivity, which we have said before happened around 722 B.C. Now, again, I don't presume to know that, every, to, uh, presume that everybody's in the same uh, historical background, but uh, the nation of Israel was divided after the, after the time of uh, King Solomon, there's the northern kingdom we call Israel, there's the southern kingdom we call Judah, and just as I'm thinking about it now, the most prominent tribe in the northern kingdom was called Ephraim. And so sometimes we'll hear the word, we'll see a reference, and we'll see it today, a reference to Ephraim. And that's a reference, and if, in the context, if the context looks more like, well, that's probably talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, it's like re Ephraim as sort of the representative tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel. We recall uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and, well, Ephraim was a grandson. That's more complicated. But anyway, uh, Ephraim was one of the tribes. And uh, then the southern kingdom of Judah was comprised of Judah and Benjamin. So the northern kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes, of which Ephraim was the most prominent. Southern kingdom of Judah, Judah and Benjamin, of which Judah was most prominent. So uh, they get referred to as, uh, in that way. Clear so far? Yes. You'd be afraid to say no. I understand. So, um, so we talked last week. Uh, we introduced this character, Hosea. God told Hosea the prophet to marry a harlot. And, uh, and he did. He was obedient to that. God, uh, then they had, there were three children and they had uh, very interesting names that had very interesting meanings. I refer you back to last week's study on that. Uh, but not only was uh, Gomer, the wife of Hosea, a harlot, she then later committed adultery after uh, uh, Hosea married her out of her life of harlotry. And so this is kind of a recurrent problem. And... Um, God uses that as a picture, and this is the whole point. He's, he's writing this book and living out this ministry through the life of Hosea. He's writing this as a, as a picture of God's relationship with rebellious Israel, particularly the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, as it's uh, dealt with here by Hosea. And so 
we see this picture that God uh, is painting and uh, having Hosea go through the experience of, of all this pain and rejection as a picture of what God goes through as his children reject him. Now, you know, you can think about, I just gave you a storyline that we could think about too much, right? Um, and again, I've, I alluded last week, um, particularly I'm, I'm acknowledging that there are children in the room and, and so I want to be respectful and all that. But you know, I think it's okay to say, you might think that Gomer's a harlot, Hosea sort of sweeps her up like, um, you know, just sort of rescues her, right? Like some kind of Prince Charming out of this decadent life, right? I mean, this is the ultimate Cinderella story, right? And you would think, therefore, that they would live what? Happily ever after. Because she is just exuding thankfulness. Oh, my goodness, you've brought me into this place out of that wretched life that I've lived, I now experience the goodness of Hosea, the goodness of God. I get to live this new life that I get to live. Is that how it always works? No. What does she do? She falls back into sin, right? What did the nation of Israel do? They fell back into sin. What does God, please catch this now, what does really God tell us most often it seems like in the Bible? Does he give us some, did you come, let me just, let me rephrase that question. Did you come here this morning thinking, A, he's going to give me some amazing razzle-dazzle insight that I've never heard before, and it makes me walk away and say, wow, how did he come up with that? Or B, he's probably going to rant about a stuff that he always rants about. That's like the old joke. That I got it. Can I have 30 seconds? Yes. During the pandemic, you know, there's all these, uh, you know, lockdown jokes, right? Um, and there was like an interview of a guy. And the guy's interviewing this, this man. And the guy says, all right, multiple choice. A, you'd like to be locked down with your wife for three months. And the guy says, B. That guy's Im invited to the marriage class, by the way. <laughs> Most of the Bible is, is encouraging us to remember what God has done for us, right? Like, the message to Gomer is, hey, remember where you were and where God brought you. The message to us is, hey, remember where you were, lest we think we're not, like, any, that we're any better than Gomer. That's my biggest fear for the body of Christ today is that we think we're better than Gomer. We think we're better than Gomer. We think we deserve better. We think we're more righteous than Gomer. We think we're more religious than Gomer. But the message of God, the heart of God is, remember, you were Gomer. And God has brought you into... Uh, a blessed place, the Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 place, right, where you've been blessed above and beyond all you can ask or think. You've been, you know, you were once, uh, oh boy, I'm so tempted to go back and read it, but I, I won't. You, you were once dead, but you he, he's made alive, 
right? You, he's blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You, he chose before the foundation of time to be, to, and somehow in, a, in our way our brain doesn't understand, to be seated in heavenly places. We were once Gomer, and now we're that, right? So please don't ever lose that. So anyway, that's really the point of all this, is that Gomer did what we so often do, and that is she fell back into sin and, and all of that. Now, we talk about us as individuals, you know, we live as individuals, we're accountable uh, to God for our lives, for our lives we live as individuals, we're born into sin as individuals, Jesus came and died on the cross for my salvation as an individual, I have opportunity to go to heaven because of the grace of Jesus Christ through faith, I get the opportunity for abundant life here on earth because of what Jesus Christ did for me as an individual, as an individual, as an individual, and that applies to each and every one of us, right? But there's also, and again, this is, we've got to be careful to kind of sort of tease this out a little bit. God deals with nations. God deals with cultures. God deals with generations. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't deal, it doesn't mean that he deals any less with individuals, but he also deals with cultures. And so we've got to keep that a little bit straight as we read through this. Basically, what we see here is, is sort of a courtroom um, uh, judgment, if you will, on the nation of the northern kingdom of Israel, and some of the people in that for sure, but, you know, there's always a remnant. We always have an opportunity, no matter how bad a nation gets, and part of the reason I bring this out today is because we live in a nation that deserves judgment. We live in a nation that very much deserves judgment, in a generation that very much deserves judgment, but that doesn't mean that has to be our destiny, right? And so I never want to take away from the grace of God that we have opportunity for our own lives. But, you know, as you read through this, uh, these chapters, we're going to do chapter 4 and 5 today, if I didn't say that earlier. As we read through these chapters, consider our own culture that we live in today. So, chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land, there's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. So it's like the Lord brings a charge. The, the Lord, and, and basically what he's doing through the prophecy of Hosea, he's, he's, bringing, uh, he's bringing sort of a courtroom scene. And uh, it's a common picture that he, that he paints a lot of times in the Old Testament. Uh, and in this case, God is the prosecutor. God's also the judge. The nation of Israel is the defendant. All right? And so notice here, the Lord brings a charge. There's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. And I'm going to highlight that word knowledge a little bit because it's mentioned three times in the next few verses. Um, there's no knowledge. Now, if God were to say to our nation, you know, there's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. You think God might be able to say that to our nation? I think maybe, right? Well, what kind of knowledge? Does that mean we need more seminaries? More seminaries, more advanced degrees, more PhDs, more theologians, more what? I have, I have a bias. <clears throat> I think it's revealed in Genesis chapter 3. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Some of you have heard me allude to this many, many, many times, but I think uh, for the sake of new people and just for the sake of, again, reminder, uh, I thought it would be healthy to read through this. Everybody there? Genesis 3? 
So by the end of Genesis 2, um, you know, God has created the world. Everything's great. Adam and Eve are living in uh, holy matrimony. And then chapter 3, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat, of the, eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Can I draw an application? I don't think it's a stretch. That Satan has two fundamental strategies that are exemplified in these verses. Number one, did, has God indeed said... Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? What's he doing? Did God really say that? Did God really say that? He's casting doubt on God's word. He's casting doubt on God's word. And she says, well, we can't eat or even touch it, which he didn't say that, but anyway. Statement number two out of the mouth of Satan through the serpent then the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die now that clearly is a challenge of God's word you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil I believe what he's doing here is he's attacking God's character can I paraphrase? God knows that if you eat that, you're going to know good and evil. It's going to be awesome. And God is holding something back from you. Right? As kids, don't we grow up, right? And our parents give us a rule that we don't like, right? And how do we translate that? Mom's trying to spoil what? My fun. Mom is spoiling my fun. Mom is ruining, mom can single-handedly, has the capability to ruin my life by telling me not to ride a horse down the middle of the street during rush hour in Atlanta. All right? She's ruining my life. I believe the knowledge of God that we read about in Hosea, there's no knowledge of the Word of God and there's no knowledge of the character of God. Now back to my earlier question, am I going to give you some new insight or am I going to hammer on what I always hammer on? Do I hammer? I hope, I hope if you're here for 10 minutes, you know that guy's going to hammer. I mean, when you woke up this morning, you poured your coffee, right? And you said... I think I'm going to go listen to him talk about the Word of God and the character of God today. I hope you sort of subconsciously thought that. And I hope that's our expectation. And I hope I never get tired of talking about it. Do we, have a, do we need more understanding of the Word of God in our culture today? 
in our church today, in the body of Christ today? Is there an, is there, do we have a horribly weakened, anemic church today because of a lack of the knowledge of the Word of God? Yes. You bet we do. Now, hold on to that. Do we also have a twisted view of religion and of everything else because we don't understand a biblical frame of reference of the character of God? Yeah. Do we sometimes think God is mad at us? Do we sometimes think God is not there for us? Do we sometimes think all of these things because we lack a knowledge of the Word of God? Yeah. And so, back to Hosea, I think we have, I think there's just a, a horrible, horrible, and there was in those days, lack of knowledge of God in the land. And I would, I would submit that it's primarily a knowledge of his word and a knowledge of his character. And any society in which the knowledge of God is gone, the knowledge of God's word is gone, guess what's going to naturally follow? No truth or mercy. So back to the courtroom scene. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. That's how it rolls. We start to think we know, we know enough that we don't need to read God's word. I've read it before. I've read it before. We think we know who God is. We can never stop learning those things. So, Verse 2, by swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. And so what happens when a society uh, lives like this? They break all restraint. Does that sound like America? I think it does. Does it sound like the nation of Israel during the time of the judges? I think it does. Now, the idea of they break all restraint, let me just give you a 30-second summary of the history of the nation of Israel during the time of the judges. The time of the judges, there was a cycle that they kept going through. They'd go through these cycles, and I think there's seven of them in the book, if I'm not mistaken, um, where uh, God blessed the people, right? And what happens too often when God blesses people? They get sort of fat and sassy and a little bit sloppy in their faith, right? They get a little fat and sassy and sloppy in their faith. God brings a little discipline, usually in the form of the enemy nations, right? They find a little discipline in the form of the enemy nations. What do they do? What do we do in our moments of desperation, church? pray. They cry out to God for help. God sends a redeemer, a judge, a rescuer, and brings them usually some kind of victory to back to where they're comfortable again. And what happens then after that a little bit while later, they get fat and sassy, you know. And I heard one guy explain it one time. My pastor up in Indianapolis kind of says, it's like a circle. It's like these circles keep going around, right? I think of it like this. Please catch this. I mean, it's, in a sense, it's like that, but, you know, you think through these metaphors and these pictures in your head before Sunday morning, and, and they come out. I think of it as, uh, these, as sort of a sine wave that goes lower each time. Does that make sense? So we ca- have this kind of cycle, right? But if you read through the book of Judges... I would encourage you to do this sometime if you've not done this before. You read through the book of Judges. First time, yep, got fat and sassy, got rebuked, cried out to the Lord, got delivered. Second time, uh, you guys probably should have known this before, get it a little harder. By the time you reach the end, and, and let me back up. 
the recurrent line through the book of the Judges is, as some of you know, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In those, day, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And let me just say, a society that lives without some flavor of absolute truth is a society in which everyone does what's right in their own eyes. That was a picture of Israel during the time of the judges. That's a picture of America in today. And so what happens is, if you read through the book of Judges, the first time you're like, oh, they got a little hand slap. Second time, oh, they got a little kick. And by the time you reach the end of the book of Judges, you talk about generational sensitivities. I mean, those of you who were with us during those days when I was reading through the book of Judges, I remember giving parents like a heads-up warning. Hey, by the way, you might want to read next week. It's ugly. There is some... When you read the latter chapters of the book of Judges, to me, it's, it's, it's revealing what human beings are capable of doing to one another. The, the depth of depravity that a human being is able to, to live out is, is crazy. Where did that start? No knowledge of God, no truth and mercy, swearing, lying, who cares? Killing, stealing, adultery. They break all restraint. There's no restraint. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What happens in a society where everyone does what's right in their own eyes? We break off all restraint. We see that, we see that somewhat playing out uh, in our world today. Therefore, the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. And so, you know, uh, this was, their, their nation's going to go down. The northern kingdom of Israel went down at the hand of the Assyrians. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So national sin has some national consequence, right? In Israel's case, there was a national consequence. Uh, you know, we haven't quite faced necessarily national consequence. I'm not here to say that we, that we will or that we should, but God wouldn't be out of line if we do, Right? Think about how our nation was founded. Again, talking about remembering what God has done. Some of you heard me say this before. I, you know, whenever I think about, you know, Revolutionary War type American history, really like a bunch of farmers with guns <laughs> hiding behind a bush are going to take out the most powerful military in the world? Well, that's dumb luck, isn't it? No, it's not dumb luck. It's God. God established this nation. God shed his grace on thee. We would do well to remember that. And we're vulnerable if we don't. Verse 4, I'm going to read down to verse 10. Now, let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore, you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. So the leaders, the priests, the prophets, they're leading these people astray as much as anybody. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of what? Knowledge. Because you have rejected what? Knowledge. I will also reject you from being priests for me. 
because you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up my, the sin of my people. They set their heart on, the iniquity, on their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. And so here, the idea is the priest and the prophet, the, the folks that should be leading these people, they're just as bad as the people. You know, the, the leaders of a nation do have a tremendous influence on the culture, right? Uh, whatever, if you have an authority sphere, uh, we've talked about this before, whether at the workplace or in the home or whatever, you have, a, you have an opportunity to sort of lead others either for good or for bad, right? And, um, you know, we think about the nation of Israel shortly after it was divided. Again, you got the northern kingdom of Israel, you got the southern kingdom of Judah. God had told the Israelite, uh, all the Jewish people uh, in the Old Testament law, uh, at least three times a year, you need to go to Jerusalem and worship, right? Now, what, happened if, what would happen if, if, you know, God told us, hey, three times a year you need to go to Louisville to worship, right? And then let's say we had some big, you know, political division, military division between Indiana and Kentucky, for example, Right? And let's say I'm the king of Indiana. Governor. I might be tempted to say, Louisville, Schmooville, God's everywhere, right? Let's worship God in Indianapolis and in Fort Wayne, right? Because I want it to be convenient. That's, that's how I'll spin it. I want it to be convenient. What's my real paranoia? My real paranoia is people go down to Louisville where God told them to go and they'll have an encounter with God. But that doesn't help my rebellion uh, of the nation very well. It's exactly what Jeroboam did. He set up a, go uh, he set up a false idol, uh, a golden calf uh, in Bethel. Bethel was a name of a city that, that uh, God told Jacob. Uh, remember when Jacob kind of laid down on the pillow, uh, the rock for a pillow? And God said, this is called the house of God. The name Bethel means house of God. So, so uh, Jeroboam, the first king of the divided kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel, he sets up an altar to, to, to you know, a golden calf, basically makes up his own religion, establishes his own priesthood, not from the line of Aaron, has one in Bethel, has one way up north in Dan, up in the northern part of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was more convenient than going to Jerusalem. Everyone's able to sort of do what's right in their own eyes. We can establish a priesthood according to our line of people. You know, by the way, why in the world would God say all the priests have to be descended from Aaron? That's, that's so outdated. That's not very progressive. That's narrow. You like my vocabulary? We need to be more tolerant. Let's have our own priesthood. So now by this time, fast forward a couple centuries, right? What do you got here? 
My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. You've rejected, you've rejected, you forgot, you forgot. You were, you were more concerned about your own, uh, what's right in your own eyes. You're more concerned about your own convenience. And even being religious doesn't do it. Turn over to the right, Second Timothy chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, Paul tells Timothy, But know this, that in the last days, and I believe that's the days we're in, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. Anybody notice that? Do I need to back up and explain that? Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Do I need to explain that? No. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice this, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. In the last days, let me just paraphrase at least how I read this. In the last days, there are going to be people that are so full of themselves, so evil, and so religious. Be careful. Be careful. So back to Hosea. You know, the priest is leading the people away. The prophet is leading the people away. We need to go back to a knowledge of God's word and a knowledge of God's character. God's character is love. And so, these guys are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They've rejected uh, knowledge. And knowledge of God's Word and knowledge of God's loving, gracious, merciful character is our best defense against any wayward leadings of our culture. Verse 11. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols. And their staff informs them, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. So, sin and ignorance go hand in hand, do they not? Right? Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. What happens when our heart gets enslaved? Now we're we're leading by our emotions, our own desire to kind of create our own destiny, our own, even our own theology. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, Right? You know, again, we, we kind of, we kind of uh, I wouldn't say make fun of, but we, we kind of maybe even have a hard time getting our heads around an ancient culture or several ancient cultures that would build these wooden idols, maybe carve them out with their hands, with their tools, set them on a fireplace mantle and worship them and ask counsel of the thing that I just made. The thing that I just made, by definition, is at least no smarter than I am, perhaps dumber. The only thing dumber is to ask counsel of that thing, right? So harlotry, wine, new wine, enslave the heart, right? Sin affects the emotions. It also affects the intellect. 
It affects our understanding. Turn over to John chapter 3. Starting in verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. That was Jesus. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You ever notice that some people just will not come to church? They will not come anywhere around the name of Jesus. You can talk about God. You can talk about the force. You can talk about the man upstairs. You can talk about higher power. But you talk about Jesus and suddenly the room divides. You ever notice that? That's the light that came into the darkness. And men don't like that sometimes. And women. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Because everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So what happens? If I'm walking in sin, the last place I want to be is lit up because it's going to expose me. But what's a corollary of that? The corollary of that is I'm walking in darkness. What happens when I walk in darkness? I don't see very well. Is this rocket science? I'm walking in darkness because my sins, because my deeds are evil, because I don't want to go into the light. And then I wonder why I can't see. I wonder why I stumble and fall. I wonder why life seems chaotic. And so, back to Hosea, what do I have to do? I have to, I, I'm left with nothing but to make some statue and ask it its advice. We well, think, boy, those people are crazy. Do we not come up with the same stuff? I'm going to take a risk here because I've done it before. I'll probably do it again. You might have woke up this morning, poured your coffee, and said, I bet he's going to say something stupid because that's happened too. It was a couple years ago, I think was the first time I realized this, that you know what it means if you see a cardinal, a red cardinal? Raise your you know what that means. It's your reincarnated loved ones. I didn't know that until a couple years ago. Right? And I, I don't want to be disrespectful, but you could have a lot of fun with that. Right? And, and you could, because it's, it's honestly, again, I want to be nice, it's absurd. That is me coming up with some crazy ideal that has no basis in the thing that I would, if I believe that, it's got no basis in the thing that I have lost knowledge of or rejected the knowledge of. And I've, so since I've rejected the knowledge, I have nothing left but to come up with something on my own that makes me feel good. So I might be grieving the loss of a loved one. I mean, I, my heart breaks for people that if this, is, if this is the best they've got. My heart breaks for someone who the best source of comfort is that they might be able to look out the window and see that that's grandma at the bird feeder. Right? 
Again, I'm trying to do, handle this delicately. But how different is that? Is that any different than my people ask counsel from their wooden idols and their staff informs them? Is that any different? And we come up with all kinds of stuff. It's not just the cardinals. That's just the one that came to my mind. We come up with all kinds of stuff. Can I suggest when we depart from the Word of God, that's the best we got to make ourselves feel better, to fill that void in our heart. We all have a void in our heart. We're born with it. It's called sin. We have a brokenness in our relationship with God because of the sin that we're born into. That void has to be filled. We either fill it with Jesus Christ or we fill it with wooden idols, reincarnated cardinals, whatever. But there's a lot of truth in the Word of God. I, put, I, I am so thankful. I am so thankful that I have this. I'm so thankful for the security and the hope that it provides. I've got to tell you, my wife... You probably poured your coffee and said, He's gonna cry. I'm going to go watch him cry today. <laughs> my wife's describing this story of a plane that had trouble landing in a thunderstorm. And like the, f- the flight crew kind of quasi trying not to flip out. Everybody on the plane trying to quasi not flip out. And she looks at me and she says, and she's describing the story. She says, you know, I kind of thought I might die that night. And she's describing it to our kids. And one, of my, one of my daughters said, to me the miracle of this whole story is that mom's just like telling that story like she's talking about what she had for lunch. And she's telling the story and she thought, you know what, I might die that night. Play might go down. And, you know, I'll miss my family, and I get to be with Jesus, and it's all good, and God's in control, and God's got this, and, it's, and he's bigger than I am, and he's bigger than this plane is, and he's bigger than this thunderstorm is, and so it's all good. Would you rather have that, or would you rather have some hope in whatever craziness you could come up with on your own? There's a piece, my Bible this thing that I can count on, written by the God who I can count on. He wrote in this Bible that there's a peace that passes understanding that we don't understand. But in the moment of truth, there's a peace that comes. I've seen it several times played out in situations like that. And it's real. It's certainly more real than I won't talk about the cardinal anymore. Verse 13. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and terebinths because their shade is good. So they worship, you know, all this idolatry in these places because there's good shade. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit harlotry. I'll not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. 
for the men themselves go apart after, with harlots and offer the sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. And so, you know, God's saying, you know, the guys that lead the nation into sin uh, have a greater responsibility than those that just even practice it, even though God is just and all that. God deals with sin on an individual basis. But, um, you know, the, the folks that, that lead the nation astray uh, bear a greater responsibility. Verse 15, though you Israel play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Remember that Judah is the, the southern kingdom? Let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying, as the Lord lives, for Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So, again, you got the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah had some times of reprieve where they weren't as wicked as the northern kingdom. And so God here is just saying, hey, Judah, listen, don't go up to Gilgal. That was a city in the northern kingdom. Don't go up to Beth-Avon. That's a city in the northern kingdom. Don't go up there. Stay away from them. Let them alone because their drink is rebellion. Stay away from them. Ephraim, again, a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel. Gilgal and Beth-Avon were both uh, cities in the northern kingdom. Interestingly, Beth-Avon was the city of Bethel, but it got renamed. I said Bethel means house of God, right? Because God named it to Jacob when he, when he was there. They named it Beth-Avon, a play on words, no longer means the house of God, but now the house of sin. So what was the house of God is now the house of sin. Bethel became Beth-Avon. And they were cities of idol worship in Israel. And so God's saying to Judah, you got to stay away from there, right? God would say to us, you know, uh, beware of idolatry in the nation. Beware of crazy ideas. Beware of people that, that worship idols. Ask counsel from uh, things they shouldn't ask counsel of. Beware of all that. Proverbs 13.20, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So he says to Judah, don't come up here, leave him alone. And briefly, chapter 5, hear, o pre hear this, O priest, take heed, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment because you have been a snare in Mizpah and a, snare and, and a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter. Though I rebuke them all, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defied. So God is just stating more direct now, uh, specifically to the leaders, the priests and the kings, and they had a responsibility to lead in godliness. Instead, they led him in sin. Verse 4, they do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. I want to just pause there for just a second. Again, I want to be um, vague where I need to be vague, but harlotry is an act, Right? We might think of the act of sin. But notice here, the spirit of harlotry, right? What's the spirit of harlotry? I believe it's this. I believe it's, hey, I can do whatever I want. I won't get, I won't get away with it. Or I won't get caught. I'll get away with it. I can do what I want. It's no big deal. Have you ever heard no big deal in the context of sin? That's when you run. Hey, come on, we're all doing it. It's no big deal. That's when you run. The spirit of harlotry says, I can do whatever I want, and there's no consequence. 
Verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies to its face, to his face. Therefore Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. So Judah is ultimately going to be uh, brought into this fold uh, by their influence. Um, Israel and Ephraim, again, stumble in their iniquity. Back to John chapter 3. Why are they stumbling in their iniquity? Because their deeds are evil and they stay away from the light, right? And so it just goes, it, these things just go hand in hand, hand in hand. My deeds are evil. I stay away from the light. I stay away from the light. I stumble. I stumble. I fall. I hurt myself. I lack direction. I lack direction. I need to comfort myself in the, in the challenges of life. So I come up with crazy things like taking counsel from wooden objects right? It's the, it, it all goes very, very hand in hand. Verse 6, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. And they, remember in the, Jewish, in the Jewish law, in the Old Testament law, what were flocks and herds used for? Well, they were used to you know, uh, for provision for your family, but they're also a means of worship. So what he's talking about now is, is the, the Mosaic law, the worship, the, 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 their, their worship of God. They're, they're trying to be obedient to God in, 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 their, in the religious sense, but not in the knowledge of his word and knowledge of his character sense, in the religious sense. It's possible to be very religious and very lost. You get that? We see it in the Pharisees in, the Jesus, in Jesus' time, right? Very religious, very lost. Is that possible for us today? Yeah. Very religious, even judgmental religious, if I could say it that way. And very lost. He says, take your flocks and your herds. You're going to go seek the Lord, but you're not going to find him. He's withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord. They have begotten pagan children. For a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. That was, again, part of their religious ritual. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon, again, renamed Bethel. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. What happened to Ephraim after, uh, what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel after I the Assyrians came? They became desolate, exactly as, as, as predicted. Verse 10, the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. So, you know, Judah was brought into this, uh, and again, they probably weren't, they were a little more delayed in their, in their wickedness relative to the northern kingdom. But one of, the, one of the early things here about Judah we see, they're the kind of people that can move a landmark, right? Like, what do it mean in the ancient world to move a landmark? That means move your property line, Right? What's that talk about? Integrity, right? These guys lacked integrity, and they didn't have their guard up, and so they fell into the same uh, sin as their, as their northern kingdom neighbors. Verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. Again, willingly walked by human precept. That sounds like everyone did what was right in their own eyes right? Same thing. Same thing. Thus they were condemned. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. And so just one final sort of postscript on this, right? 
<clears throat> you know, you reject the knowledge of the Word of God, you reject the knowledge of God's character, right? You, uh, you stay away from the light because your deeds are evil. Now all of a sudden you find yourself stumbling. You find yourself not exposed, but yet stumbling. You find yourself lost. You find yourself now having to come up with crazy theology and crazy uh, uh, answers to the difficulties of life, the, the, those philosophical questions of life. You have to come up with them on your own because you're, you're not in the, in the light and you're in the darkness. And one final thing, you need a little help in this endeavor, right? So what do you do? You go look to your, your man, your human neighbors, right? And it's no coincidence that the, who are their human neighbors at this point that they're going to go to for help? Assyria. When Ephraim saw his sickness, he went to Assyria. Is that a good idea? What's going to happen uh, in a few years from this, from this writing from the nation of Assyria? They're going to be the ones that come in and, and thump them, right? They're going to be the ones that come in and thump them. And so there's a long, proud history of the nation of Israel looking for help from the people that wind up being their enemies. Why not look to God? Hey, America, why not look to God? Well, we tried that. No, we tried religion. Why not look to God? According to His Word, according to a proper understanding of His character. Verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. He's going to bring judgment. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. What's the point of, of return on this, in this problem? Till they acknowledge their offense. Repentance. Repentance is the answer. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So God will bring punishment, and repentance is the only real solution. So, again, don't forget, God deals with personal sin and national sin. Our personal sin, your personal sin, my personal sin has been dealt with by Jesus Christ. And it's been dealt with. How's it been dealt with? Well, it's been dealt with in such a way that if you accept Jesus as your Savior and you do all this and you do all this and you go to church and you be a good religious boy, then you're in. Is that how it works? No. When Jesus hung on a cross, on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. The work required to fix my sin problem was finished done paid for completely paid in full paid in full national sin can also be repented of but when we see it in our culture we know that God can't ignore it we know that we need to be on guard against it we need to know that it needs to not affect us personally and in the meantime we get to be the godly remnant we get to be the light that shines in the darkness and so uh, these are sober words sober words of warning you know God oftentimes we read the Bible we read, we read chapters like this and we say man God is harsh can I say this 
God is so loving that he warns his people. God is so loving that he warns his people. And history has a tendency to repeat itself. So let's be people that have a knowledge of God's word. Let's be people that have a knowledge of who God is. Let's be people that don't, I mean, we can't live lives of perfection. We're not expected to. We shouldn't strive to. And if we think we do, that's a, that's a whole other problem. But let's live in the light. Let's walk in the light as he is in the light, First John tells us. And if we walk in the light, and we're not afraid of our deeds being exposed, right? I mean, if you walk in the light, are you going to have some things exposed? Yeah, you probably will. And what's going to happen with them? God's going to deal with them graciously, right? But let's walk in the light as he is in the light, and we'll have fellowship with one another, First John tells us. And then we don't have to make up our own stuff. We don't have to come up with wooden idols. We don't have to worry. And if we find ourselves in a plane that might go down, we can say, God's in control. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness. Thanks that you take good care of us. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, you've preserved this word through the pages of history, through the pages of lots of rebellion and lots of heartache by man. And Lord, you brought each of us to a place where we have a privilege and the opportunity to hear from you. And so we want to hear from you clearly, Lord. Help us to be people that freely walk in the light. Help us not to be the people that avoid the light because our deeds are evil, but help us to walk in the light. And Lord, if we need to repent in order to get there, help us to do that. But help us to do it in a way that gives us tremendous clarity. And help us to follow you with lives of faithful obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.